In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. How am I doing as a father? And, and I place a lot of emphasis on trying to be a good husband and father, and I find it to be a struggle in the world we live in. So it's really great to step back and look at and analyze myself. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we salute you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena Podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, your host for today's show. Guys, I'm super excited about today's guest. This guy was on Alone, Season 7. Uh, he brings so much to the table. I think we can learn about uh, loneliness versus being alone, testing your body to the limits, and getting out of your comfort zones, quite frankly. Hey, are you curious to learn about this guy? And what do you have to say? I'll tell you what. I am. I am so excited. I love the outdoors, and I am really pumped to hear what this guy has to say. Hey, guys, also want to say thank you for making the Men in the Arena podcast Spotify's number one podcast for Christian men. We're so excited uh, to be able to serve you guys and to equip you to become your best version. So, guys, I want to tell you, this week we've got a man law for you. Our man laws are supplied by you, our heroes, and when we use your man law, just hit us up at info at menandarena.org. Send us your physical address, and we will mail you some Men in the Arena swag just to say thank you. So this week's man law is simply, I call it the Facebook rule. Never poke me, invite me to play Candy Crush Saga or Farmville. And listen, guys, I know I'm going to be inundated with this now that I say it, but never post an emoji when you're commenting on a, a post, especially if it's my post. I just don't do it. So anyway, hey, guys, I want to share a hero story this week. This hero story comes from Herbert, and he lives in Zimbabwe, Africa. He said, I came across your podcast, was looking for material and becoming a stronger man as a Christian. One of the biggest lessons I've learned in taking a strong stance on being active in our communities and taking an active role as fathers in the lives of our children. I've since started a men's group for first-time fathers where we share experiences and ideas, preach the gospel, and encourage each other on the journey of fatherhood. The work your team does is priceless. Thanks for honoring the call of God in your life. So, Herbert, thanks so much for that, man. Uh, make sure you email us at men, uh, info at menarena.org, and we want to send you some swag when you give us your address. Hey, guys, I am super excited to bring Joel Vanderloon on our show. Man, this is going to be such a fun show, you guys. I am just so intrigued uh, by his experiences in life and uh, the things he's done 
to make himself a better version. Joel is 37 years old, married to his beautiful wife, Leah, for the last seven years. His experience in the outdoors began from childhood, growing up living off the grid on an isolated stretch of wild bush near the coastline of Africa. Joel was a participant on season three of Discovery Channel's Bushcraft Build-Off and History Channel's Alone Season 7. You can check all that stuff out. Joel, man, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Jim. It's great to be here. Hey, I know I missed a few things on the bio there, so I want to just give you about five or so minutes just to tell your story, a little bit more about your personal life, things you enjoy, hobbies, anything else you'd like us to hear. Yeah, I mean, I think you did a pretty good job. Um, Summed it up in a nutshell. Um, I was actually born in uh, South Africa, and then it's when my parents separated. My dad moved up to Tanzania, East Africa, so I kind of had this um, upbringing between the two countries, between Tanzania and and South Africa, and it gave me a really good good, uh, opportunity as a child to to really get to um, immerse in different cultures, languages, and of course, different landscapes. So, um, yeah, a little bit of my background as a kid, I was running around and in, uh, well, it was close to 700 acres between ours and uh, our property and our neighbor's property. Um, and just obsessed with wildlife, you know, and, uh, we had, um, Maasai as our sort of gods, um, for the property, um, because we did have some dangerous animals roaming around leopards, lion, had a hyena show up one day. There was hippo once upon a time. Um, there was buffalo. There's quite a few, quite a few animals which we had to be careful of. So we brought the Messiah, and really, it was uh, my interaction with them that got me into tracking and trapping, um, and really that that interest, that intrigue of the um, of the, the the deeper ancestral knowledge that um, we we've lost. Um, so you know, as a kid, that kind of was the introduction, and um, you know, from there. It was also my grandfather was also very interested in the sand bushman, and I was probably about five when he get when he had get given me um, my first sand uh, bow and arrows, and uh, made by them, which he'd brought back from um, from the Kalahari Desert, and he would always tell me about them. So it was it was always this sort of um, you know like when I used to watch cowboys and Indians, I was always for the Indians. You know, I was just really obsessed <laughs> with um, the the indigenous cultures and uh, very very obsessed with their their way of living and and their beliefs. And so um, that's just carried on through life. And so it, life has taken me on a big journey. I, I've spent uh, spent like fourteen years working at sea um, as an engineer, which um, really gave me the opportunity to travel around the world. I've been to like over 40, 40 countries, and and pretty much since I was nineteen, I haven't lived in one place longer for, for, you know, for longer than a couple of years. So, um, it was only uh, about, what was it now? It was seven, eight years ago that I actually settled down in the U S for good. Um, when I was, um, working over here in 2007, I married my, my wife who's American and, um, and well, we, we got together. So we got together, what was it? 14 years ago. Um, and we, wow. we actually, we, we actually married, uh, seven years ago. Um, I, uh, I, I, I needed a little time to, you know, we all, we all need to mature in our own ways, <laughs> yeah. but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah, she, she's a great woman and yeah, we decided to just naturally set this in the U S and really, I think once, once I sort of committed to settling in the U S 
so many things just fell into place. Like I feel like it's really been my calling to 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 move to to live in this country. And to me, the U.S. now is more home than than anywhere else. So very settled, very happy here, very blessed to be here, and very blessed to have the opportunities that um, have presented themselves um, since living in the U.S. Like being able to run my own survival school, meet very, very talented, experienced individuals in that, in that sort of community, um, get involved with some TV and, and yeah, to continue, um, you know, to introducing people to the outdoors. So you had mentioned something and it threw me off a little bit and I was going, what, what is, tell me about the Maasai. Yeah, the Maasai is, uh, they're nomadic herdsmen. So they're, they're, so Africa is, um, just, full of different tribal um, peoples. There's there's so many, I couldn't even mention them all. Um, the Maasai are uh, from a nor- northern Tanzania, southern Kenya. Um, th- that's their indigenous homelands. And they're nomadic her- herdsmen. So they, they um, cattle and goats are primarily um, what they farm, but they have to travel big distances in order for them to graze. Um, so they're they're really like farming wild, if that may, that's the best way of putting it. And they're very, yeah, yeah. very, they've lived very, very simple lifestyles, um, very connected to the land and um, very rich culture, very, um, very intricate culture. And their um, understanding of how to work with um, plant medicines and with, um, with the land, in a sense, uh, is comparable to any of the indigenous tribes, um, very connected, very wise. And so that was what drew me to them. Wow. That is super. I, that's really exciting. I've never heard this before. And, uh, this is going to be a hard podcast for me because I have been backpack hunting all my life. So when I talked to a guy who's been in the wild and you were, I'll let you tell your story, but you were there for a, a long time. And I, I'm really intrigued by this. So I need to stay focused. And as I shared earlier, had, uh, episode, on, yeah, it's going to be fun for me. On episode 166 of our podcast, we had Dave McIntyre, who actually was a lone season two winner. And so just going through the things that he wrestled with and went through was really intriguing. And I'm excited to hear about your stuff. And I've already heard you on uh, the um, Huntback Country podcast. So will you tell us a little bit about the selection process and how you ended up on this show. There's thousands of people that um, they, they sift through in order to select around 20 to 22 to go to boot camp. So um, I was really fortunate in that I knew uh, Dave Nisha from season three of alone who referred me. So I was, I was lucky enough to get contacted by them. And then through that, uh, they, they give you a bunch of questions, you know, they video you, they, they do um, what they call a sizzle reel and they present that to um, history channel and the production company. And then you get the call. Yeah. You've made boot camp or not. So I made boot camp, and that's uh, roughly around June is when they do the boot camp, so that those 22 people all meet up and then they chuck you out in the woods for a couple of days and they test out all your skills and then they do psychological testing. They do physical testing. Um, yeah, they they a lot of questions, a lot of lot of answers. You do interviews with the his, History Channel, and and you know the, that whole process is pretty nerve wracking because you just you just don't know. Um, but you get you starting to get really excited. Um, and sure enough, I was I was lucky to be one of those those ten that got selected. So 
that process was, uh, was, was great. It was a great, great process with good people involved. And one of the, the best experiences of Alone was actually meeting um, all the other participants who to this day, I'm still in touch with most of them. Now, once you're selected, they dropped you. I know where they dropped you off and how they did it now, but where, where looking back, where did they end up placing you and how close were you to the other contestants? The, yeah, so they, where they dropped me off, uh, Keith, um, was the closest that I was dropped off to. However, we were not directly uh, bordering each other's land. There was a, quite a big gap, um, but he was on a pini- oh, okay. yeah, but he was on a peninsula that I could see. So from my from my uh, camp area, there was this peninsula that was about like if you had to walk across the lake um, two miles, maybe. And he was he was on that peninsula, so um, which was pretty cool. But it, there, it was too far to to hear or see anything with all the wind and, and that sort of thing. So I, I felt very alone. I never, apart from some the boat going by every now and then that I could see in the distance, I couldn't really hear it. I could not hear any people, any sounds uh, or sights of human beings. And whereabouts did they drop you off? They, well, it's it's hard to. It was Great Slave Lake. And it was the northwestern, no, northeastern part of of Great Slave Lake. Yeah. Wow, and that's in Alaska. The, this is the Northwest Territories in Canada. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. The so sub- now on this show, you were allowed to take ten items. Yes. So did they give you a selection and you just narrowed it down to ten, or did you get to pick your ten? How did they do that? No, you're absolutely right. They give you um, there's a there's a list, and you have to choose from that list. 10 items. Yeah. Okay. And you chose a saw, bow and arrows, fishing line and hooks, snare wire, axe, multi-tool, ferro rod, which is a fire starter, pot, a pot, not pot, (laughs) (laughs) sleeping bag and a gill net. So, so why did Uh, you, I'm like, you chose pot. I mean, (laughs) anyway, uh, why, why? So, but that really is a good question because a pot sounds a little bit obscure. And I, I've heard your reasoning behind why you chose these ten. Did can you share about how you categorize them based based on uh, ancient survivalists? Yes. Okay. So first off, uh, pot was strictly not allowed. They they strictly said no, <laughs> no nothing nothing of the sort. So um, I, I chose. Uh, so okay. So let me let me back up. So I. I First off, this this uh, idea, should I say, is is sort of being um, really broadcasted by another very well respected individual in the in the survival world, Dave Canterbury. Um, he's he he classed these five things as to be the five things that you do, it doesn't matter which um, which ancient uh, tribal populations you want to go and investigate. They all would have needed these five things and created these five things out of varying materials in order to, to ensure their, their survival. And the moment that I first read that when he, when I'd read, cause I've got several of his books, um, it, to me, I knew that to be true instantaneously from what I've observed with different tribes. So those five things are the five, he breaks them down into the five C's. Okay. So first is oh. a, a combustion device. Every single culture had to be able to make fire. 
And whether you were up in the north and that was a bow drill rubbing two sticks together or whether you're in a desert environment, it was a hand drill or Southeast Asia and it's a, a fire saw or the Polynesian Islands and it's a fire plow. It Either way, everyone figured out how to make fire somehow. Nece- necessary tool, of course, for us human beings. The um, a cutting tool, which, you know, a knife, axe, saw, cutting tools are absolutely imperative for, uh, for our survival. Without them, it's, it's nearly impossible. Um, and every single tribe had figured that out. And whether that was with obsidian rock or whether that was with quartzite or whether it was with chert, either way, they figured out how to sharpen rocks in order to make cutting tools. Um, cover material. So that's the third C. Cover material would be clothing or shelter. Um, you, every single tribe needed it, whether you're in the rainforest um, or whether you're in the cold Arctic. Everyone figured it out from, you know, uh, musk ox and you know wolf fur all the way down to tree bark for you know and and deer skins and stuff for for clothing so everyone needed that that aspect too cordage cordage rope was is always is such a helpful thing that you know we don't really realize like binding materials we use in everyday life and so that was another very very big part of of every tribe for bowstrings, um, you know, to, to, to make packs, to carry things, leveraging things, you know, to, building shelters. Um, and then lastly was, uh, uh, what was the last one? Cut, we got cutting tools, cordage, container. container. So getting back, getting back to the pot. Uh, so containers. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, the container is not necessarily just a waterproof container, but containers as far as packs to carry things, uh, weaving baskets to carry food items in, you know, you look at all cultures and whether it was clay pots, whether it was uh, made from plant fibers, uh, whether it was burn bowls where they've actually burnt out wood to make containers, every tribe figured out some way to be able to cook it, uh, cook items in, boil water in, carry things in. And so really those five foundational things are so important. Um, and if we really analyzed our daily life now, we still use all these five things every single day. Yeah, I, I heard this. So that really is the f- – yeah. Well, I heard you share this on Hunt, uh, the Hunt Back Country podcast, and that was really – incredible for me to hear from a guy who'd been backpacking all my life i'd never done put that into those five categories i thought that was a very very powerful and the containers you don't think about that but you go well i've got a backpack i've got a water bladder i've got a jet boil there you go i have three containers whenever i have a pack system maybe more absolutely absolutely so let's so, so were there items that didn't make your cut that you thought about uh, y- y- yes. Okay. So there were, there were items that, um, well, I'll, t- I'll put it this way at the time beforehand, there were no items that I was not able to select that I wish I could. But after the fact, there were certainly items that I wish I had not have brought and other items that I wish I had brought. So I ended up, um, I ended up having a very hard time with my trap line because of foxes. And the, so the snare, the snare, snaring, I mean, I think I snared two rabbits the entire time that I was there. And so looking back, the snare wire just wasn't as useful as what I was hoping for. So I would have switched that up for, for paracord. Um, I also didn't use the saw all that much. I used the ax way more. So I, I, I actually, um, 
So what I actually would have done is probably uh, taken a block of salt. That was an option, a block of salt. I would have taken a block of salt and I would have taken uh, some some dental floss. <laughs> I, uh, oh, really? I just had, oh man, I had the toughest time with getting, um, just the, the rabbits were very tough and I just had all the, the meat getting stuck in my teeth and it was really inflaming my, my gums. So I would make, I would, I would carve up very small toothpicks to try and get the, uh, the, the meat out between my teeth. And that actually just exacerbated the problem. It just made it even worse. So some dental floss would have been helpful, but, um, no, but on a serious note, uh, the block of salt, I would have given up the snare wire or the saw for a block of salt. And I'll tell you why there's a lot of, um, reasoning behind that. When you're out there living on, um, for the sake of simplicity, it's an, it's a ketogenic diet. You know, you're living on primarily meat. Absolutely. Very, very few, uh, be- basically berries. There's a variety of three different types of berries that I was, um, feeding on. Uh, there was access to edible lichens, but there was no edible, like there's no leafy greens. There was no root vegetables in my area. I know that some of the guys were eating fireweed root. There was no fireweed in my area. Um, so that's what I was limited to with that kind of diet. You, um, you, you, you tend to go through a lot of your mineral at your nutrient stores within your body fat. Um, all your, your minerals, especially, you know, like your zinc and your iron and magnesium, all that sort of stuff. You, you get, you don't get a lot of that out of the diet. So unfortunately I was very low on certain minerals, exactly which minerals I couldn't tell you, but I know that uh, hyponatremia was an issue that I was having. So I was drinking water, but my body was not absorbing the water. I would, uh, I was having a problem, a real problem staying hydrated. Um, so having a block of salt, that sodium, I, I, I think would have helped me a lot more to, to, to maintain the hydration. So here's a weird question. Would that, how, would that salt block have helped you in hunting? Or would well, you keep that in camp? I would have kept it in camp, but it could have helped with hunting, um, especially when uh, the snow really stuck. Because, of course, uh, mineral licks, as you you probably know, exist naturally, and um, most animals, predators or prey, will seek those mineral licks out. And once they find them, they will consistently visit them to to obviously uh, supplement the minerals that they don't get out of that specific forage that they have. So that was actually the reasoning or for the option from the production company was for hunting purposes as a mineral lick. Um, but I would have used it myself and a block of salt. I think it was like two pounds is a pretty big block of salt. I wouldn't have needed that much. So yes, I would have, I could have absolutely have used that as a, as a, as a hunting, as a technique to lure them in. Yeah. So I want to talk about the hunting component, but, but more about the emotional side of this. You made it. I think the goal they had for the contestants was a hundred days. You made it 40 days. I mean, that's a long time out there. You tapped out due to starvation. But early on in your experience, you had an experience with a moose. Will you walk us through that and the emotional side of what happened on that? Yeah, that was uh, that was a big hit to me. Um, so I, I, I went out there. Actually, I don't think I've mentioned this before, but I went out there with this um, subconscious goal um, was to, to harvest a moose. In fact, I went out there with two goals. Um, it was a spiritual quest for me. Um, you know, when I'm in, when I am in nature, that is when I feel like I am in 
the, the sort of closest connection that I can feel to our creator. So when I'm, when I'm alone in particular without distraction from others, I feel like that bond is as, as, as intense as, as I can create it in this, in this life. And so for me to go out there and be alone for that period of time, uh, I, I knew would be a very, um, would be very meaningful spiritual adventure for me. And so I was, I was craving that. I really wanted that. And uh, also obviously wanted to see what kind of limits, um, what are my limits? You know, I wanted to push myself, but, but there was that, that definitely that underlying goal of harvesting a moose to have the opportunity. I mean, to have a moose tag um, and be up in this, this amazingly remote part of the world and harvest a moose. So it was day five and I was actually not hunting. I was not far from camp and I was limbing a tree. And I know uh-huh. that just, just the, 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 the noise of chopping off these limbs and then dragging the branches away sounded probably similar to raking. Yeah. And so this big bull moose walked up and uh, was intrigued and I heard a, sna- a twig snap and I looked over and there, there, wa- there was about 35, 40 yards, there was this monster bull moose standing there. So I immediately dropped to my knees. Uh, I kind of kept out of his view. I grabbed my bow. I hit the, the record button on the main camera, pointed it in the general direction, and then I just stalked up and I was about 30 yards and I took the shot and I heard that distinct whoa, like hitting, definitely hitting bone. Um, it was it was a rib, sh- definitely in the ribs. Um, I could hear it hit bone, but as far as the placement goes, I couldn't have asked for better. It was you know right behind that front shoulder. Um, he took off immediately, and I thought to myself, "Well, okay, what am I going to do right now?" Because normally <laughs> we would let that animal just run off, and you'd give him time. Yeah, we only have it's roughly around five square miles. Um, we only have so much land to work with. If he goes off of that, off my land, I, I cannot pursue because they've got these like this geo fencing that goes around and, you know, you, you carry this little yellow brick, they call it. And if you step out of the lines, they immediately get notified and they call you and they say, get back into your, into your land. So I decided I got to chase him. So I, I, I didn't grab a camera. I did nothing. I just, with my bow, took my shoes off. So I was in my wool socks and I just slightly jogged in the balls of my feet. Um, about 200 yards, I caught up with him and he was just standing there. He still was very completely unaware of my presence. I don't think he, he, to this point, he'd never seen me. So he didn't know what happened. Um, I saw him standing broadside. His head was covered. So it was kind of good, good vantage point for me. Um, and he had bright red blood coming down all down his front leg. So I was feeling very confident at this point. He actually, I saw him shake a little bit, like a little unstable, yeah. and then he, he bedded down. And I thought to myself, well, okay, this is, this is the start of the end. You know, this, this is, a, I, I cannot believe I'm about to harvest this animal. And um, I, I was then, I then came to the realization, I don't have any camera to film any of this. And one of the obligations I had was to film everything. Yeah. So I got no knife. I got no knife to process nothing, and I'm not that far from camp. And I thought to myself, "Well, I've got three options here. Either I sneak downwind and I slowly come up on him, and I put up and put another arrow in him. Now, if my arrow, sh- if that shot is not perfect, like perfect hard shot or double lung pass through, 
that animal is going to get up and run. It's going to know of my presence and it's going to, it's going to, it's going to leave this land. I'll never be able to harvest, you know, get this animal. So it has to be perfect. No room for error. I, I just didn't feel confident enough to do that. Plus I saw him bed down and I thought, okay, let's, so we've ruled out the one option. The other two options is to stay here, watch him and just observe if he gets up, follow. And if I felt necessary, shoot another arrow, but otherwise just follow him until he dies. But then it nagged in the back of my mind that I did not have the camera and I cannot film any of this that transpires. And then I started to feel really guilty and I made the decision to head back to camp and get the camera, get a knife, and basically then come back and commit myself to being with that moose um, until it expires. So I did, and I got back and that moose was gone. And I tracked it for two days, couldn't find it, lost the blood. Um, it was heartbreaking. Yeah, I, I think you did what most guys would have done, give it time, let it expire. I mean, it sounds like everything. You must yeah. have single lunged it, I'm guessing. Yes. So yes, because I so I went back, found, found the arrow where he had he'd turned and he had broken the arrow off, uh, rubbing up against a black spruce, and so I looked at the end at, that had broken off, and I I figured there was probably about five inches uh, of penetration in his lung now for a big bull moose. That's I mean they're what three three feet wide, so um, yeah, single lung, and they can survive a long time on a single lung shot. So, so you're at day five, you're in the middle of nowhere, you are quote alone you've had uh this high 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 and then if anybody's ever hunted and lost an animal it's about as low as you can go so how did you pull yourself because you made it over a month more how did you pull yourself out of that low uh to to continue on Man, that's a good question. I'm trying to remember exactly how I pulled myself out of the low. I remember feeling, I remember feeling so low that I, that tapping out was a very, very strong consideration. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah, I just, uh, I, I, they didn't, so they didn't end up putting this footage in be, for obvious reasons because I didn't harvest the animal and I really appreciate them not putting it in. Um, but I, to me, my whole mindset at that point was great. I'm going to be the guy who wounds a giant bull moose and then gets shown on TV. Um, and for all non hunters who don't understand these things for non bow yeah. hunters, um, of course I'm going to, I'm going to be the devil. So, it, you know, it, it was like something that was really weighing on me that this is going to be, I'm going to be a, viewed as a bad person and, uh, inhumane for this, for this whole experience. And that really was getting me down. Um, but I knew that, uh, I knew that the, the, the meat would not go to waste. There is like a dozen animals in that food chain which are going to benefit from that moose when it dies. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, 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 just, I just kept on telling myself to not be so hard on myself and the fish, there's plenty of fish and just to, just to move on, just to move on. And it took, it took about a week to really break out of that funk. Um, but I was just able to talk myself, just, you know, keep on going and, you know, just I was f finding the positive things in all the other aspects of being there. But I, I did, I did feel like that was my winning opportunity that I lost out on because that's a lot. That's a lot of meat. That meat would have been, I mean, months worth of yeah. meat. So yeah, that would have taken you through day one hundred probably. Yeah, come close, right? That's a giant. That's a well, they got to be close to 1,200, 1,400 pounds on the hoof, right? I would say. 
Oh yeah, I would say around a thousand pounds for sure. Um, his uh, his shoulder was my head height, so and I'm six three. Um, and then the, his rack would have probably been about yeah, like seven, eight feet tall. I mean, it's just a Man. gigantic animal. I'm so sorry to hear about that. For you, I've been there before. It's a nightmare. So yeah, what's the takeaway? I know you train guys in survival. You you know you work with people all the time. What's the takeaway for a man when like one of your buddies experiences a massive disappointment in his life? How could you use that moose experience and talk him through it uh, and walk him through it? Sure. You know, there's, there was a number of challenges out there. I would say that the moose was, was one of the hardest, but um, there was several challenges that I was going through at the same time as my failure with the moose. Um, and yeah. one of those, and really I feel like elaborating on this a bit because uh, to show the, the sort of different challenges that, that presented themselves, which in, in respect were actually kind of harder than the moose. Um, not having a uh, human uh, presence out there, human noise or any sort of distraction, like giving you that comfort of humans in that area um, became sort of uh, quite a little difficult actually. Um, and I, and I'd spent, you know, up to 10 days um, alone in the woods before. But it just seemed to be quite challenging with the, the lack of animal sounds in the area that we were in. There, it was such a deathly quiet place, so mm. quiet that the, the quiet was almost loud and, and, and a little obnoxious, which I found strange because I've, I've been able to sort of to, to, to sink into any environment around the world and really feel like I can be, I can be part of it. Um, but that became really tough. And then of course, thinking of missing my son, you know, and, uh, really missing a lot, like, like human interaction, all of these things added up and they started to, to, to be a little depressing, but I just reveled in the fact that I had such an amazing opportunity and, I think that what really got me through it all was just knowing that it could always be worse and it doesn't matter if you're in a tunnel of darkness, there will always be, the light will always come into it at some point. It's just a matter of time. And so just knowing that with this experience, there's going to be highs and there's going to be lows, but every time you hit the bottom, there will be a high to come. So and that's what, that's what kept me going. That's a real powerful statement. You said it doesn't matter if you're in a tunnel of darkness, the light is still to come. And I think uh, if you're a man listening and you're in that tunnel of darkness right now, realize there is a light to come. That's a very, very powerful statement. So now I went down the list of the contestants and and one one guy made it all the way and then everybody else uh, you know, had varying levels uh, and reached a certain amount of days. And they all uh, ended their quest for medical reasons. How many of those were compounded with the fact that they were missing someone they loved, in your opinion? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, let's see, there's, there were several of us that did not have children. Um, there was there was several who actually didn't have a significant other. Um, so, like, I'll use Callie, Callie as an example. Callie, who was the runner-up to, to Roland, the winner, um, who we, we're very close friends. Um, and, in fact, she's, she's, she comes to Africa with me with the, for the, when I run my trips with the Hadza people. 
And we've got to really talk a lot about this, the experience. And she did not have like, um, she doesn't have kids and she's not married. So that she didn't have that sort of weighing on her mind. Um, mm-hmm. She did have a partner at the time, but it just allowed her to have that element of sort of, of, of or lack of responsibility back home yeah. that I think kind of weighs on the shoulders of um, of the others who do have kids um, or, you know, a partner they're very close to. So I would go ahead. I, would, I mean, I would say that all of us that had children back home, it was a big factor. I think that part of all everyone's decision-making when they have kids out there, the kids are a very big part and the wife is a very big part of their decisions because – you, you you miss them like crazy out there. I mean, you have this opportunity to really um, understand how important these things are and how we take them for granted in normal life. So yeah, when you're when you're out there, you're constantly being reminded of that. And there's so much medicine in that out there because you know it's beautiful. You get to really look back at your life introspectively. And you can analyze, what am I doing wrong as a person? How can I do better? You know, how am I doing as a father? And, and, and I place a lot of emphasis on trying to be a good husband and father, and I find it to be a struggle in the world we live in. So it's really great to step back and look at and analyze myself as much as missing them. So what did you come away with for yourself personally as a father and husband? What, did, what was your takeaway there? My biggest takeaway was presence. Um, I think nah. that... I think that uh, presence is something that does, uh, we don't shine a light on presence enough. Um, and that's that meaning presence, meaning pres- being in that present moment, existing yes. in that present moment in life with your son or with your wife or with your friend or with family, just being 100% present and not being somewhere else in your mind, thinking about work, thinking about you know, payments, thinking about all that sort of stuff. Kids pick up on that. And of course, you know, your wife picks up on it. And so this, the sort of challenges that present themselves in life, it's really, I think, uh, advantageous to be able to, to, to formulate a plan on how when you have decided that you're going to give quality time to your wife um, or your, your child, that you're able to push that out of your mind to be 100% present with them. Yeah, And so that was, that was a big takeaway. That's a very powerful statement, Joel, because, you know, I know a lot of, I have a lot of buddies who are, I would call them very nomadic. Uh, they're always yeah. moving around and that really has hurt their fathering and their, their relationships with their spouses. And, um, and then I'm in the hunting community as well. And, you know, guys like us, uh, you know, from the moment the season ends, we're prepping, you know, I've got to put in for my Wyoming tags right now, you know, prepping, 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 thinking, 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 planning, 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 and then you're gone and they're there are a lot of hunting widows out there and it does not go well. And I think living in the present is so important because our kids and our wives need us to be emotionally and cognitively present. even when we're physically present. A hundred percent. So here's the challenge is that, we, I believe that there is still a pretty, a pretty large portion of us men that have, that have fairly substantial genetic ties to our hunter gatherer days. I, I do, yes. and I think that as as men, we were the roamers. We were, you know, we were out there 
hunting um, to feed and take care of the families. And if not, we were out protecting them. So I, I think that that shine, that still is like a, a presence that's within us. And so that draw to Rome, I know I could speak for myself, is still very strong. And I do believe that you have to be true to yourself. You, you have to be the man that you know you are instead of being the man that you think you should be. Uh, mm-hmm. Meaning that mm-hmm. we don't want to we don't want to create this persona of a person we think we should be and completely just block out who we really need to be to thrive and be fulfilled. Yes. So, so for me, the way that I've looked at that is, I have to be true to myself. Um, I have to be true to the person that I am, and that is that I am a Roma. <laughs> I, I'm a wolf. I need to go out and roam, and. I also want to be the best family man that I can be. So how do we find that balance? And I really, the big takeaway from me on loan was, yes, you can go and roam, but when you are home, be present. When you are with your wife, be present. When you're with your son, be present. Give them the quality of time that they deserve um, and that will suffice or be adequate for the amount of time that you are away from them. Well, that's a real powerful point because I'm just translating that into man speak here that we need to get away as men at times and do things that fill our tanks as men. And for example, my my wife after 30 years has said to me, you know what? I don't like who you are right now. You need to go out and kill something. (laughs) She she realizes there's an (laughs) element there's a tank. There's a tank filling element uh, uh, that is involved when a man has something to uh, roam and discover and conquer and find. And there is now there's a balance, right? Because we don't want to get over the top and be that guy who's never there. But we need to find that balance between roaming so that our tank is full enough to come back and be fully present and fully engaged in the lives of those who love us the most. So that's really Perfect powerful. Words. That's a powerful, powerful statement. So I want to go back to this concept of silence and solitude. You know, um, in the early days of Christianity, this was a massive movement. They called them the Desert Fathers. They wandered out in the wilderness, and they just lived out in the wilderness alone in silence and solitude. It, it's called a spiritual discipline. And so you talked about the difficulty of the uh, extreme quiet with no noise, with no you know human interaction, but you also talked about this spiritual connection to your Creator. What, what what did what did you learn about silence and solitude in your own spiritual growth? Great question. Okay, so I will first say that from spending various times alone. Over the past several years, I will say I think it should be mandatory for human beings to, especially men, to be spending time on their own in the wilderness, whether it be three days or three months, doesn't matter. The amount you get out of it is unlike anything else you can do in life. Um, So your question, yeah, so with with the solitude and that – the 
the real benefit I got out of the solitude, which I will say initially, so initially it was tough and I was very confused by that because I'd spent time alone before and it was quiet and I, and I, and I just love, I relish the, the sounds of nature, but I don't know why I was finding it so challenging, but it, it, it took, it was about day 14 and something just, just clicked in my brain. Like if there was a switch in my brain, I felt that switch turn on or turn off, however you would want to phrase it. But I believe it to be turned on. And you know what I really um, sort of equated to was the amount of change that our brains have had to go through as we've become modern human beings with all this distraction and the screens and the stimulation, all of this stuff, our brain has had to adjust And I think it's adjusted really well in the sense that it knows how to handle a lot of the stimuli, but does it really want it? Do we on a spiritual, our spiritual self, our soul, do we want that? And when I broke through, when this switch, when this switch closed on about day 14, there, it was almost as if my brain was like, okay, we understand the process that you're going through right now. And we've decided, I've decided right now that you are going to live in the presence for the entirety of the rest of your stay here. And that switch went off. So from that day on, there was absolutely no anxiety, no fear. There was pure bliss. I call it bliss. Just acceptance for whatever, however, everything was perfect the way it was. It, it, it was perfect just the way it was from the weather changing to snow falling to um, not getting a fish in that net to the next day getting a fish in that net. It was all perfect. And I believed um, intuitively, instinctively that everything was meant to be just how it was. Um, and so that um, going from that solitude to being a place of like discomfort to that switch going off in my head and realizing wow, this is how we are meant to be. This is, this is how our mind wants to be. This is how spiritually we want to be. We want to be living in a constant place of presence and acceptance for everything the way it is and seeing the beauty in everything. So, so yes, it was difficult in the beginning, but once I broke through that, um, I was on a high I was on a high with, with life and my connection to our creator and everything that has been created for us to enjoy um, in this beautiful world. And so I was living every moment with that, that gratitude. And that was, that, that is the hardest part about my experience on a lone ending was I, I can recreate that to some degree but to that level of intensity, um, I imagine I would have to go out there once again for for at least two weeks, a month or more to get that level of connection again. Um, it's the kind of spiritual experience that I'd that I'd wanted when I before going out there, and when I got it, um, life changing. It's it was absolutely life changing. Yeah, and that I find is life giving as well. When you're stuck in the middle of nowhere with yourself and your thoughts and your God, it forces you to step away from the noise. I mean, I, I, I'm seeing little kids wearing these blue light glasses now at night. 
so they can sleep because of all the tech stuff. And I just, I just don't think that's yeah. a good thing. I think that men who are listening right now, I mean, I know I struggle with being stressed out and it's because it's during those times when I don't get away and just enjoy the creation uh, and just get away from it all. What would you say to a city guy? So, I mean, I live in the city. I mean, how do I systematically do that? You know, I don't think it's, this is a very, um, your audience is going to be the right kind of people that would, would see the, the merit in this sort of message. Yes. You, if you're a spiritual being and you believe that our God created every living organism on this planet, if you stepped out of the city, even in a park, and you watched a robin jumping around, pulling worms out of the ground, eating berries, how can you not see your creator in that beauty? So it, it, it doesn't mean having to even leave a city. It just means to, to watch the creations that we live amongst and, no, and noticing and appreciating the divine in every living being, whether you're out in the deep, darkest wilderness or whether you're in your backyard looking at some birds. Um, you know, this is where, this is where for me in my life sort of, path is going and my passion it's it's you know this this close connection with nature to me to me is like the closer that i can get with the connection to nature and meaning like really delving into animal tracking and bird language and understanding um different medicinal edible plants that to me is connect is is creating a closer bond to my creator because the more in the, this more intuitive and or more, the more wisdom that I can gain from his creations, I feel like deepens my connection with him. That, that's really powerful, man. And, and I, you know, it's, you, you talked about hitting day 14 and hitting this state of bliss. Now I, I, I chuckled to myself because you're on day 14, you're in the middle of nowhere, you're alone, you are malnourished. You are lacking minerals. Uh, you're on the path to starvation. So how do you how do you deal with the tension between this state of bliss in the in the solitude mm-hmm. and this state of incredible discomfort and starvation? Because you know we have to realize you're yeah you may be in this state of bliss, but your body is not blissful at all. So how did you come uh, deal with that tenuous uh, situation between your, that paradox, so to speak, between your body and your spirit? Well, my answer is kind of in your question. Spiritually, (laughs) spiritually, I was thriving and alive and physically I wasn't. And that spiritual awakening, that aliveness was overpowering my physicality i was and that's really and it it really got to the point where the physicality started to become completely dominating um to where i i did have to make that decision on whether i was going to stay or go and there was a new, there was numerous things that were going on i mean like from severe insomnia due to that mineral deficiency um, dehyd- severe dehydration, um, severe fatigue, re- like fatigue, like you cannot imagine. Um, and 
I had very inflamed, very inflamed gums. That was a constant source of like throbbing pain. And so it became to where it was just constantly noticeable that that was there. Even though spiritually I felt so alive, I didn't want to leave. I did not want to leave. Um, in fact, in my mind, um, I wanted to, I wanted to hit 60, I wanted to hit two months, um, as my benchmark and then just kind of see and, how long I could go after that. But I, 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 I figured after losing that moose, there was just like this inst- instinctive knowing that I would not make a hundred days. Um, mm. And so I kind of, I, I kind of accepted that. Um, so instead of plotting to like win where every decision was based on like going the long haul, I had decided to myself that I had had such a beautiful spiritual awakening and I was, I was loving what I was experiencing out there that what I'm going to do is I'm going to get the most out of every single hour of every single day so that when I do leave, I can look back and be like, yep, I, I got everything that I went there to get. And I'll tell you something. I had, I don't tell this to many people. One of my other goals to, when I went out there was I deeply, deeply wanted to experience wolves. I have had a spiritual connection with this animal in, in a lot of different ways. It has a lot of meaning to me. I really wanted to see wolves. Up until day 38, I had not seen a track of a wolf. I had not heard a wolf. There was no existence. And on day 38, by that point, now I'm feeling really like lack of, I'm feeling bad. And I thought to myself, there is no ways I'm leaving here until I see a wolf. I was walking to my fishing net. I, that, that morning, that morning, I even said it to the camera. I get wow. up and I go and I check my fishing net and I'm walking up to the fishing net and I look over at my inner lake, which is very shallow and it actually frozen up. And I'm watching a fox on the lake try to jump into these, these holes to try and pull fish out. So it made these, these holes in the ice. I'm, I'm not even sure how the holes got in the ice. Um, I just got there and I see a fox trying to jump in a hole. And it, I mean, I'm now ecstatic to me this is like i am witnessing god right now in his work do you know this is yeah this fox has no idea that i'm there and i'm watching this beautiful moment and i catch this movement in the corner of my eye and i look over and there's three wolves standing on the ice staring at me from i mean i'm talking like they're like a mile away and they're just looking right at me and there was this moment of connection and understanding and I just started crying like an absolute baby. I wow. The, I mean, it was everything I had hoped for. And so it was just, I cried my way all the way to the net, crying with joy. Like I just couldn't believe that it had happened and I was so blessed for it. Um, I went and I, and I, my net <laughs> was, was a different story. It was completely frozen up with ice. It was an absolute treacherous deal trying to chip it out of the ice. And, and, and at that point I realized, wow, this is really getting dangerous to keep setting this net. And that was my main uh, food source at that point. So I headed back to camp. And, um, anyways, it was morning, it was day 39 that evening. Um, I just couldn't stop thinking about these wolves and thinking about how amazingly, uh, well-rounded this experience had been. I had, I had hunted, I'd killed rabbits with my bow successfully, several rabbits and fed myself. I had caught fish with my net. I had caught fish with a, with a lure that I'd made out of trapping wire. I had snared rabbits. I'd shot a moose. 
you know, I had, I had, I had fed myself every day, sometimes not as much as others, but I'd fed myself every single day. I'd built a really well-made shelter with a, with a fireplace made out of tin cans and rusty metal. And I had kept myself warm. Um, and I'd really done everything that I wanted to, to prove to myself out there. And I just, that night insomnia was, I didn't sleep, not a minute. And after that, another whole night of not sleeping, I woke up that morning. Well, woke up. I got up that morning and it was still dark, got the fire going. And I'm just like sitting there. I'm like, how? I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do about this insomnia. I am so fatigued. I just, I don't see how I can safely retrieve my net anymore. Um, and I just thought to myself, like, I think this is my time. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a walk out to my net. Um, and I'm going to go and, and retrieve it. Um, and then I thought to myself, that's a long walk. I'm like, oh, that's a lot of energy. And I, and I was thinking, and, and, and anyways, long story short, I made that decision. I called the production company and I said to them, I'm tapping out. I said, but I, I, you please don't come pick me up right now. I need, I need to go and say my goodbyes throughout the course of this day. So can you pick me up in the afternoon? They said, that's fine. So I decided to go and retrieve my net and I was walking to all my spots, you know, and just giving my thanks, sort of somewhat knowing that I'm making a decision that I don't want to make, but just somehow deeply inside of me knowing that it's my time and walking to the net, standing in the exact place that I was, what is it, the day before, looking out at the lake, thinking, man, there was those two wolves over there. Maybe they were a sign. Not a word of a lie. Right at that moment, the whole pack started howling. I couldn't see them, but boy, could I hear them. And (laughs) once again, I started crying. I was like, okay, if that is not a sign from God that my time here is done, I don't know what is. And that to this day has given me that acceptance that 40 days was my time. Um, I don't know what would have happened if I had stayed longer. I don't know. But I just, I do know, um, I know deeply that that was, 40 days was how long I was meant to be out there. You know, it's really interesting. <clears throat> when I was about, I think I was 32 or 34, I climbed Mount Whitney in a day. 22 round trip and so I remember at the top calling my wife and just weeping I couldn't talk to her and your experience reminds me of something similar to that that when we are we experience uh, uh, nature that time alone that time where we see what God has created there is a stripping away of the veneer there's a stripping away of the um, technological crust that we've built and we're able to uh, weep over things we probably never would weep for. And I, I think that that's a really good thing for men to be able to strip away that, that, that crust that we build up for being so connected to um, things that maybe don't matter at the core of a human. And maybe overstepping that part. But does that make sense? speaking my language yes so whether you want to call it a crust or a barrier or layers however you want to term it to be to to live in truth 
when, when I think of how I can live in truth, living in truth to me is living to the true potential um, of the spiritual being that I am and not living according to the person that I think I should be, which is, which is, well, that I think I should be, or living as the person that I have been created to be by negative experiences in life. And I think that something that's really important to me is that being a father of a young, of a young boy who's going to be a man, I, I want to make sure that he doesn't get any of the crust around him that's caused by me. I want to make mm. sure that I, that, I tell, that I can teach him that he can cry if he's sad. He can cry if he's happy. He, if he wants to laugh, laugh. If he wants to shout, shout. If he wants to, if he wants to play hockey, play hockey. If you want to hunt, hunt. Whatever you feel inside of your soul needs to be expressed, express it because then you're living in truth. And if you do not do that and you, you, you alter your personality because of what other people thinks, think or insecurities or what your father or mother expect you to be, you're not living in truth. And so I think that this goes with, for many people in this day and age, I think the, one of the biggest issues we're facing is we're not being true to ourselves and we really are live, we, we are, really are creating this alter ego that is very much based on, on what other people, this fear of what other people think of judgment, of expectation. And a lot of it comes from parents. This is where as parents, as men, as fathers, we have to change this. We have to break this cycle. We have to teach our kids to be, to, to live a life of truth and free of expectation just with acceptance and encouragement. Well, and you said it earlier, and that comes when a man is present and is able to do that with his children. And so, you know, you're, you're speaking my language, man. We are all about men becoming their best version, and that best version is their best version, not somebody else's. So they can create Correct. a heritage of people who have seen dad live out his best version, a dad who is physically emotionally, spiritually present at all times. So, man, I, I really, we're out of time, man. I am so thankful <laughs> for you taking time to come on our show. Uh, man, it's just such a blessing to have you on, Joel. Thanks so much. Oh, it's been my honor. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Hopefully I'll be able to see you when I drive over the hill about two and a half hours. Guys, hey, guys, let's get our boots on the ground. What are you going to do about today's episode? What are you going to do about what Joel had to share? Guys, here is your boots on the ground. Action. Item. I want you to take, I, I know this may not sound like a lot for some of you guys, but I want you to take a full afternoon, three or four hours. I want you to go out somewhere in the wilderness and just reflect on the creation that God has given you. Sit in silence and solitude. And Joel was leading into a, a place of gratitude for all that God has given you. And I would encourage you bring a journal, bring a notepad and start writing stuff down. Because I think it'll blow your mind. Guys, why don't you take some time this afternoon, head on over to our website at menandarena.org, grab your free copy of my book, Tell Them What Great Fathers Tell Their Sons and Daughters. Sign up to join our program. If you click that button, we will have one of our representatives get a hold of you ASAP, get you on one of our many virtual teams. Until next time, feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Grind it out. And be a man. 
You've been listening to the Men in the Arena podcast. If you hunger to be your best version, then join thousands of men from around the world in our Men in the Arena forum on Facebook. This is the best place to have open discussions around the topic of biblical manhood. Make sure to explore our website at meninthearena.org, sign up for the weekly equipping blast, and take advantage of our many free resources designed to help you become your best version of a man. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. Remember, when a man gets it, everyone wins. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.